Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. My guest this week is James Esses. James is a former barrister, a former counsellor at Childline, and also a trainee psychotherapist. James's story is quite an interesting one. He's been in trouble over the past few years because he's being very open about his views on gender identity ideology. And we explored all of that in our conversation today. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. This is the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and James Esses. So, James, I was talking to a teaching assistant from a primary school last night who was saying to me uh, that she'd got into a lot of trouble because a six-year-old at the school had decided that they were born in the wrong body. And the uh, members of staff at the school uh, were giving her a hard time for asking questions about this and and raising concerns about how how we ought to best approach uh, this difficult situation. She wasn't being transphobic, she wasn't being hateful, but she was being attacked on all sides by other members of staff. So this, I think, tallies with a lot of your experiences, that you've raised um, concerns about this entire area, particularly in in relation to children and gender identity. Why is it you think that we've reached this point where conversations about this topic just cannot take place? You know, it's a good question, Andrew. Um, I think we need to think about the scene that's been set on this topic, because the, the language that is used is such that it's almost impossible to have respectful open dialogue and i'm sure we'll get onto this a bit later but i mean the term transphobe or transphobic has become common parlance anyone who dares to question this ideology anyone who dares to raise any concerns even in the case of children or even in women's rights or gay rights is automatically deemed a a transphobe and it's, it's said with such vitriol um that it's very difficult to move on from that and have any form of Aggressive type of conversation. I mean, you know, it's, it's a very sensitive topic. We're dealing with a very complex mental health condition, which can be extraordinarily distressing for those going through it. So, you know, I, I always appreciate the need for sensitivity when discussing this, but I, I found myself in the vocation of psychotherapy and I've had conversations with teachers, with lawyers, with doctors, with social workers, all of whom simply cannot raise their beliefs or their concerns in this space for fear of just being shut down entirely. I mean, what I don't understand about that is that the, I mean, I've spoken to an awful lot of people who are raising concerns who want to have these, albeit sensitive conversations. Mm. And as you say, they are focused or, or it's coming from a place of concern over either the rights of children or women's rights or gay rights, all of these um, causes that one would typically and traditionally associated with being progressive, compassionate causes and indeed the people i speak to do fall into that category of being both progressive and compassionate and yet the readiness with which people are willing to smear such people as evil hateful bigoted transphobic all the things that they are palpably not um and i just wonder how how we've reached that point where where that is the sort of go-to smear even from major institutions such as stonewall well over time, and look, I've been smeared in that way um, repeatedly, but over, over time I've come to realise that individuals go for that type of slur um, when they don't have any concrete argument to present. I mean, I'm, I, I've, I've written quite a lot on this topic, I've spoken, I've done interviews, I, I write a lot on Twitter, I, I, I write articles. What, what comes back from the other side is never an engagement with the points I've raised or a critique of the points I've raised. It's simply personal attacks and vitriol and, uh, and character assassinations. Uh, and that's a sign to me that they simply do not have an argument in response. I've, I've reached out openly on my Twitter, for example, to seek any 
trans activist or someone with different views to me to be willing to engage in a, a neutrally convened, impartially held debate or dialogue on this. I've never received an offer. No, I've done the same. And I've repeatedly invited people for a good faith discussion about the issues. And, and uh, I've had absolutely no success whatsoever. Um, and that's really dispiriting, I think, um, when one side of this argument just will not will not is not prepared to discuss. I mean, Stonewall has a mantra, which is no debate. Uh, but of course, if you don't have that discussion or that debate, you're, you're not going to persuade people of your view. And they're, they're failing to persuade people of their view, aren't they? Well, we have to think about the way that Stonewall and other rights movements succeeded over the years. And they did so through constructive dialogue, through collaboration, through putting forward a positive idea, a positive message of how we can all live in a society, not attacking and slurring those who disagree with them which is why ultimately I think that approach is doomed to fail. But unfortunately, in the short term, they've been quite successful because, you know, ultimately they put the fear of God into people that if they don't toe the line, that they're going to be socially ostracised or even that they're going to come for their, their um, reputation and their livelihood. So let's talk a bit about uh, your experience on that uh, basis, because you, you've specifically mentioned their uh, attacks on reputation, attacks on livelihood. Let's talk about what happened with you when you were a counsellor at Childline. I, don't, I hope you don't mind talking about, about that and what happened there. Uh, can you give us some sort of background uh, on the assumption that a lot of the people uh, listening to this won't, won't know uh, about what happened to you? Yeah, so I, I, my, my background is in law, but I wanted to try and do something a bit more fulfilling um, for myself. And so I began to volunteer at Childline as a counsellor. I did that in total for about five or six years. Every week I was going in and I was speaking to the young people on the phones for all manner of issues, um, ranging from bullying to self-harm to forms of abuse. And over time, in relation to gender identity and gender dysphoria, um, and I was noticing year on year there was a significant increase in the number of children coming through to me of younger and younger ages, saying that they felt they were trapped in the wrong body. This was quite new to me, and, and so I took it upon myself to immerse myself into all of the literature and the research on this topic. Uh, and once I started reading, um, and once I started seeing some of the treatment pathways, I'll put it as that these young people were going down, I became extraordinarily concerned from a, from a psychotherapeutic perspective. That ended up being the catalyst for everything that followed, including my eventual expulsion from my master's course. Well, we'll get on to the master's course in a, in a moment. But when we talk about uh, what happened at Childline, so you yeah, raised yeah. some concerns. Uh, and what was the reaction from uh, the, those in authority at, at Childline? Well, initially, they seemed willing to engage with me. I, I raised it informally with some of my supervisors, uh, and then I sought to raise it higher up. I escalated it up to senior management. I mean, the, the very first thing that caught my eye, very literally, was one day I walked into the counselling room where we all speak to the young people and there were posters plastered all over the walls from Stonewall um, saying some people are trans, get over it. Uh, and that struck me as very odd because prior to this, I had never seen any other form of ideological propaganda, I will put it, um, in that room. Uh, that, that was meant to be a, a space in which counsellors, I thought, could engage freely with each other, raise concerns with supervisors and have discussions about what is in the individual interests of each young person coming through. But that to me was a very clear sign, actually, that 
open dialogue wasn't okay. Um, so I, I escalated up to senior management. I raised some of my concerns in terms of things that I had heard in training, concerns I had with Childline's own webpage. They have a webpage on, on gender identity. And if you read it, it reads as more of a roadmap towards transitioning for young people. Um, so that I had quite a few concerns with that. And at the start, they seemed willing to engage with me. Um, and I had a number of conversations and, and they said that they would take my feedback on board. Um, ultimately, they didn't. In fact, they ignored every single piece of feedback I, I put forward to them. Um, but as my name became more and more well-known in this area, particularly on social media, and I'm sure we'll come on to that in a bit, um, they basically said that they had had enough and that they weren't prepared for me to be speaking out about my concerns in a public forum and also be a childline counsellor. And so one day out of the blue over a Zoom call, I was told that I wasn't to come in for my next counselling shift. And is that because they'd misinterpreted your concerns? I mean, you, you, you mentioned the posters by Stonewall that said some people are trans, get over it. Mm. In of itself, it's not that controversial. There are people who are trans. There are people who identify as a different gender. There are people who are gender dysphoric and go through uh, surgical procedures to try and resolve that difficulty. So that statement in of itself is not all that controversial, is it? Um, I, I disagree, I think, for two reasons. The first is we have to think about who these posters were from, and it's Stonewall. And actually, when I did digging, I discovered that Stonewall had quite a lot of input into both Childline's training and also Childline's webpage on gender identity. So that, that slightly concerned me, given what we now know about Stonewall and the way in which they've infiltrated so many organisations. But, um, but, but the message on that poster, get over it, um, to me, that is a clear example of shutting down conversation. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's not me seeking to deny the existence of trans people or seek to deny them from proper healthcare. I mean, that's partly why I'm speaking out, because I want to provide the very best healthcare for young children with gender dysphoria. But to simply flippantly say, well, people are trans and you need to get over that, to me, was a signal that conversations couldn't be held openly on this topic. And I think I was proven right in terms of what ended up happening to me. I mean, given that, that those posters are up in a child line office, is the implication to that, you know, if a child phones up and say they're feeling um, that, as though they're in the wrong body or something of that kind, uh, that you're meant to simply affirm and say, well, then you are? Well, well that's what I took from it. And, uh, and of course, you know, I'm still bound by confidentiality, but, uh, you know, you work in very close proximity to other counsellors. Also, there are always notes from previous interactions that counsellors have had with those young people. Uh, all I ever saw was, an, it was a kind of an affirmation-only approach. Um, and I obviously had to work within the counselling model of Childline, which is to be explorative and to be non-directive. So it's not, it wasn't my place to give these children advice. And also my, my beliefs, and we'll come on to those, I'm sure, in a bit, are irrelevant, actually, as far as this is concerned. You know, I'm there for each individual young person. But... Mm -hmm. Uh, working within that model, I would do what I felt was my ethical duty, which was to explore these issues with these young people, to ask them what they meant by the term trans or gender identity, to explore experiences in their life to date that they felt may have contributed towards feeling like this. The type of thing that you would do in counselling or therapy for anyone with any presentation. So I suppose the, uh, the way that activists counter this is that they draw an equivalence between this and, say, uh, and, and sexuality. They will say, you know, if a young person goes to an adult figure and says, I think I might be gay, um, uh, the adult figure won't, won't say, or certainly not anymore, they won't say, no, you're not. You need to get these uh, filthy thoughts out of your head, which is what they would have said uh, when I was a kid. 
uh, and that's changed. And they, they, they would suggest that it's a similar thing that some a child saying, I was born in the wrong body. If you say, well, we actually need to question that a little bit more. It's the equivalent to someone saying to a, a, a gay person, a young gay person, no, you're not. And let's let's rethink this. Yeah, which is a valid point. What that throws up is part of the issue we've had with the interweaving of sexuality and transgenderism or gender identity. And LGBT now rolls off the tongue so easily. But we have to remember that those letters, basically, well, the T certainly has been forced together with the others. And that's leading us now, particularly when it comes to looking at conversion therapy legislation the government wishes to pass, to, to cause all sorts of difficulties for us. Um, but we need to distinguish between uh, sexuality and, and gender identity. Scientifically, th there is nothing, there's no evidence to suggest that people can be born in the wrong body. And we need to remember that in this country, certainly, in order to legally or medically transition, as it were, you need to be diagnosed with gender dysphoria, which is a mental health condition. So we're talking about two very different things here. So, but this idea of being born in the wrong body, I mean, I, I've, I've seen uh, groups, uh, trans activist groups such as mermaids roll back on that and say, we no longer believe that you can be, or they've even suggested, I think, that they never suggested that you could be, uh, although I think that's incorrect. Um, so are, are, is the debate moving forward in that sense? Are, are more and more people recognising that it's not possible to be born in the wrong body because you are your body? Yeah, I'm, I mean, to be honest, it, I mean, we could get into kind of postmodernist critique of this um whether they've rode back from being born in the wrong body and just saying it's how i feel that the pathways and the outcomes are much the same but but if anything i find that mermaids and others are actually regressing in terms of what they're stating regressing back to old stereotypes that i thought we had eradicated i've come across teaching materials for primary school students recently suggesting to young boys that if they like dresses in the color pink or young uh, girls who like the color blue in football that rather than just being a more masculine girl or more feminine boy they may actually be transgender um i i thought the idea of being progressive in society was doing away with stereotypes whereas we seem to be going back to those days again so a lot of activists will deny that that's happening. And it's very interesting to me because um, Helen Joyce mentions in her book, uh, Trans, she mentions um, some leaked materials from a mermaid training session uh, in which there was a spectrum of sex uh, put on the, on the or, or at least, sorry, a spectrum of gender uh, put on the board. And it was identified as uh, G.I. Jane, sorry, G.I. Joe at one end and, and Barbie on the other, right? So, so that's a very old fashioned, almost 1950s kind of view of, what it means to be a boy and what it means to be a girl. So it is true that they are uh, peddling outdated stereotypes about gender and that, and that this will ultimately harm gender non-conforming children like I was. You know, I didn't play football. I didn't like the things that the boys liked. I preferred hanging out with the girls. So that, that it actually it actually reinscribes something that we thought we'd left behind a long time ago. Completely. I mean, we can bring in the idea of non-binary here um, because I think it's relevant. Uh, if, if we think about it, if we're all a combination of masculine and feminine traits born out of things that are innate within us, our family, our culture, society, and all the rest of it. You know, on that definition, all of us are a bit non-binary. But it's the truth, because th th there isn't this kind of polarised idea of what a man or a woman is, unless you see me or a trans activist or work in mermaids. So, for example, I, 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 for, for my sins, I listen regularly to the Mermaids podcast they put out, which is for young people. Um, and, and one of the hosts identifies as non-binary and they had a question into the podcast as to 
how they knew that they were non-binary. And the response was along the lines of, well, I didn't feel like Shania Twain in her song, Man, I Feel Like a Woman, but I also didn't feel like a man. And she says it really gruffly. Aggressive, gruff voice. Uh, And I I was, on those definitions, who who are any of us? We're all a mixture of attributes and traits, uh, and we always have been. Well, the, the identification of non-binary strikes me as, as as based and grounded in a very conservative view of what gender is. It, you know, to, to, to identify as non-binary, you're saying you don't feel male or female. But of course, in order to not feel male or female, you have to have an idea of what male and female is. And you have to have a pretty rigid idea of what male and female are. And invariably, those are tied to sex stereotypes, aren't they? That's exactly right. And, that, and that's the point that we're continuing to make. Um, we're trying to encourage this idea that people can can be as they want to be and people can express themselves as they want to express themselves. But when we're talking about young children, we're talking about potentially irreversible medication or surgery. Uh, you know, the, the, the stakes are far too high for us to simply go along with this and not challenge it and not question it. So there are a lot of uh, detransitioners, people who have been through the transitional process as as children or teenagers, and then uh, reversed that process when they realised that it was a mistake. Um, and they obviously get a lot of flack from activists, from trans activists who see them, I suppose, as, uh, I don't know, traitors or whatever. I'm not sure what, what that's about. Um, they don't want to validate their lived experience in those circumstances. But uh, one of the common features of testimony from detransitioned people is that all of the major uh, groups, Tavistock or Mermaids uh, or whoever, uh, were continually simply affirming uh, the their belief in their own gender identity, not questioning or discussing or interrogating or or, or or trying to elucidate it in any way, simply saying, you have this feeling, therefore that is authentic, and putting them on a pathway to medical intervention. So is that pretty much the, uh, the standard uh, approach now? Well, it would appear to be. Um, all of the main therapeutic bodies in the UK have signed up to this document, Called the Memorandum of Understanding on Conversion Therapy. Um, again, it interlinks sexuality and, and transgenderism. The wording is such, and, and people have different interpretations of it, but the wording that myself and some of my colleagues are concerned about is, is that it's so vague in nature that, that basically it only allows for an affirmation approach. Um, and so that seems to be what's happening. And certainly on my master's course when I was on it, that seemed to be the way in which we were being taught. Um, if I look at some of the training that's been put out by therapeutic organisations recently, it, it, it all seems to be about affirmation. In fact, um, there's a group called the Coalition Against Conversion Therapy. These are a group of psychotherapists and psychologists. And the chair of that group, who themselves is non-binary, a person called Dr. Iggy Moon, um, recently said that if you believe in a two-sex model, that's fine, but you shouldn't be seeing clients for therapy. For me, there's no more overtly discriminatory comment than that. Basically saying to therapists that if you believe in biology and if you believe that men are men or women are women, you shouldn't be a therapist. But it it isn't a matter of belief when we're talking about a two-sex model. We are a sexually dimorphic species. That's a matter of scientific fact. So what is is being said there? It's not clear. Well, I mean, we couch this in beliefs now, particularly for the purposes of equality legislation. I mean, the, the case that I'm bringing, which will come on to in a bit, you know, is under the Equality Act and discrimination based on my beliefs. Uh, and those beliefs are termed as gender critical. But it's basically what, what we've just said there. Uh, 
like sexual dimorphism and, and men being men and women being women. Um, but yes, uh, me using the term belief should be erroneous because it's simply fact. Well, I suppose it's like believing in gravity. I, you know, I, I suppose you have the right not to believe it. I, do, I don't think that's an issue. People can believe whatever they want. And if they believe that there are multiple sexes, that's up to them. But it mm. doesn't make it true. Uh, and and no, no serious biologist would say that it was true. So, I mean, surely at some point you, you can't have figures and authority peddling uh, superstitions and, and effectively a religious belief. Well, that's exactly what's happening. You know, it, it, it is kind of cult-like behaviour, really, uh, and it only happens on this issue. I mean, therapists from time immemorial have been used to, it's called bracketing. It's this idea that you might have your own personal stuff going on, you might have your own personal beliefs, likes or dislikes, but you don't allow it to interfere with the therapy that's going on in the room. Sure. Um, and therapists have been taught that in very general terms. But this is the first time that I've ever seen in which therapists are specifically being told, actually, if you think or feel this way, you just shouldn't be seeing clients. Yeah, I mean, and I imagine a lot of it comes out of a good place insofar as there are people who just feel they cannot exist unless they either present as the opposite sex or have a medical intervention to to, to more closely resemble the opposite sex. And, and you know, obviously everyone has nothing but sympathy for, for people in that position because it's not easy to go through those medical procedures. It's painful, it's expensive, it's difficult. It's, mm. you know, so, so th this isn't, and yet, and yet beca because of the, and because the, it comes from a good place in a lot of cases, uh, it means that people who are wanting to have th these discussions that you're trying to have will autom automatically be interpreted as trying to make people unhappy. In other words, by not continually affirming what they say, by not by not going along with a fantasy and saying that's right there there are more than two sexes by not doing that uh, you're therefore not compassionate not caring is that an accusation that's been thrown your way all the time um but, but if, if we look back at things that i've written or said i, I always seek to do so you know in a sensitive manner and I, you know there is a fair point to be made here as you said people struggling with their bodies uh, and their identity in this way it can be extremely debilitating um, I, I know that because I've spoken to these children firsthand myself. And so what should always be done is empathy, you know, active listening, respect as well in terms of, you know, how people would like to be communicated with. Um, I've got no issue with that and I would always promote that. But we cross the line and I think we breach our duties as health or medical practitioners if we then implement a blanket affirmation only approach because we, we we wouldn't do that anywhere else there's, there's no other mental health condition i can think of in which the proposed treatment is to basically affirm whatever distressing thoughts are inside one's head i mean if we look at the idea of body dysmorphia for example you know, so somebody who thinks that they're incredibly obese but they're actually unhealthily thin the treatment for that isn't to say yes you're right in fact if you feel that way you are obese mm. it, and it's the same thing here. These, uh, gender dysphoria is a mismatch, a feeling of a mismatch, disconnection with one's own body. Um, and surely the proper treatment should be, you know, slow, respectful exploration. I think similarly, you know, uh, it would be worth considering here the notion of social contagion. Uh, it's been long recognised that particularly among teenage girls, uh, there is a greater susceptibility to social contagion. And we've seen it with... Uh, bulimia, anorexia, eating eating disorders. When I was teaching at an all-girls school, uh, it was rife. But it wouldn't have been rife 20 years before. This is something that did. Uh, similarly with self-harming in schools, these things 
uh, you know, and there is, there are studies there that we know that this that social contagion is a thing, uh, and it can be very very damaging. And uh, similarly with with gender identity, it would seem to be that social contagion is playing a very uh, significant role. Uh, particularly among young girls, when it comes to this, and the evidence would back that up. So why is that? Why is why is that concept? Why are people willing to explore that when it comes to eating disorders, but not willing to explore it when it comes to gender identity? Well, quite right. Uh, and actually, this idea of contagion uh, can come about even in scenarios in which one would think it's normally boys who are predisposed to this. Um, so, because as we know. The, the demographics of those coming forward to, and presenting at gender identity clinics has now gone from predominantly biological boys to biological girls. I was at a talk yesterday um, in which there seems to be an increase in girls as, as well presenting at clinics for Tourette's and with tics, which again, statistically, historically, was something that was more predominantly boys than girls. So we do notice this happening in, in other areas of, of healthcare. Um, but yes, we should be having those exact same type of conversations. And I've spoken to parents and teachers at schools in which large numbers of a single classroom within a matter of weeks or months are coming out as transgender or non-binary. Clearly there is something going on there. Um, and we should be able to explore that and ask the questions. But again, if you try and do that, the conversation gets shut down. Yeah, I mean, it's it's an interesting one and it's difficult to, to locate why precisely it's happening. I did see a study the other day talking about, I think it was anywhere between 30 and 40 percent of American people under the age of 30 now identifying as LGBT. Uh, and I find that astonishing because uh, it's 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 almost wanting to buy into a victim category, you know, and I think to to make the claim uh, that one is oppressed if one identifies as non-binary is quite an insult to, to gay people and to the centuries of oppression that gay people have actual oppression, you know, being demonized, burned at the stake and criminalized. It's not the same thing uh, as someone who simply has conservative values of male and female and wants to identify as such. I, I, I think you're right. I think undoubtedly this victim hierarchies play. I, I think also there is something in what young children have been exposed to, particularly in, in teaching again. Um, so to give some examples, I, I come across quite a lot of Again, primary school materials which state to children that sex is assigned at birth, which we know to be factually incorrect. But what that would do for a young child, and I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of a young child, that raises a question mark in their head as to, well, if I was, if someone simply assigned me into a certain sex, well, maybe they got it wrong. Uh, you know, maybe I'm, I'm not actually who they said I was. And I can see how, particularly for a young person who's, inherently vulnerable in the sense that they're still discovering themselves in the world around them, could end up going down a bit of a rabbit hole with that. Um, I also think there's a piece about what society today is, is doing, which is embracing and actually celebrating uh, young trans people. Mermaid's podcast um, a few months ago, the message put out to young people was that if they identify as trans, they're helping the world. That was the phrase that was used. Uh, to me, that seems like over pressure almost being put on young people. But, but also I think there's something quite exciting um, that's um, put out there about being trans, as opposed to being kind of stale, boring, straight or cisgender, whatever it might be. For example, again, um, I saw a workbook, uh, a secondary school workbook, um, and it's got all of the various flags listed in it. So it's got the non-binary flag, it's got the trans flag, and, and there's many others on top of it or multicolored dots around the page. And then there's boxes for cis and, cis and straight. They're just white. It's just, yeah. it's just the page. A bit boring, in other words. Well, I, I, 
again, putting myself in the shoes of a young child, who on earth would want to say that they were into those categories? I mean, there's nothing to it. it, it it's almost saying, actually, the fact that it's simply the colour of the page is almost saying these things have no substance to them whatsoever. So then what do we do about things like, I mean, you mentioned there the phrase sex assigned at birth, which is a phrase that I've even seen in official NHS documentation. Mm. And presumably people who work in, in a health service know that it's factually wrong, but they're nevertheless using the phrase. So it's, it's sort of infiltrated our major institutions by stealth, this idea. Um, how do we deal with it when, when you know, teachers are meant to be dealing in, in fact and education and they're expected to peddle these myths? You see, I, I do sometimes think I'm glad I'm no longer a teacher because I would never use the phrase assigned as that's I would never tell a child that sex is assigned at birth because it isn't. I would uh, I was an English teacher. If people were using they and them as singular pronouns, I would correct it because it's grammatically incorrect. And I know that this is an ideological uh, movement in, in an attempt to seize language. So I imagine I would probably uh, be in a lot of trouble um, <laughs> if I were still a teacher. And yet that said, I know teachers who who feel the same as I do, although they're just generally keeping their mouths shut is maybe the way forward for people to, to just take a stand more often in these sorts of roles well pretty much i, I mean I, I think for a start people need to start particularly those in roles of you know, authority whether it's in the medical profession or teachers need to start telling the facts or the truth um i attended a meeting yesterday i can't reveal much about the attendees although i can say it was a pretty high level meeting if put it like that uh, and the individual that was speaking acknowledged that sex isn't assigned at birth, they're a healthcare professional, they acknowledged that it wasn't assigned at birth, and yet they still suggested that they would continue to use that language in information that they put out because they didn't want to upset anyone. So uh, I appreciate the sensitivities again around this and not wanting to needlessly offend people, but particularly when we're talking about science, there is objective truths and, and we need to feel comfortable to, to say those. And I think also not making things up. I, I read I read an article, I think it was in the Times recently, by Professor Tanya Byron, um, who is kind of has this self-help column. And I think a, a mother was writing in saying that a young child was identifying as trans and what to do about it. Tanya Byron in that column stated that Joan of Arc had gender dysphoria. And on the basis that she wore male clothes when she was on the battlefield, etc., I mean, that's an incredible... I mean, there's absolutely no way that you can diagnose a long-dead woman. <laughs> oh, it's, 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 it's madness. It, it is very literally a rewriting of history. And the way it was said was so casually, almost as if, of course, we all know that. Uh, you know, I called Tanya out on Twitter. Of course, I never got a response on that. But it's this type of thing that I'm, I'm concerned about, where things are being peddled as truths when actually they've just been made up. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the problem, isn't it? Is that pe people, are, I mean, as you said yourself, when major medical health professionals are, are admit that they will continue to lie about science uh, because they're effectively they're too afraid. Mm. They're afraid of the pushback. And that that is a very serious problem. And I do think our only way out of this is uh, is collective courage. And I think, uh, you know, and it's always it's always hard. You know, if I think, you know, a common a common example, which is given, which I think is exactly right, is the the witch hunts in Salem. Everyone was collaborating in a lie. Uh, m many people knew it to be a lie. And it was only when there was a tipping point, sufficient numbers started articulating. Yeah, this is a lie. None of us believe this anymore. It's only then that it stopped, that people stopped being hanged. You know, it, it, it takes mm -hmm. that sort of. But those that did early on ran the risk of being killed themselves. And that's exactly what happened to Martha Corey and Rebecca Nurse. You know, these people did stand up and say what everyone else was thinking a bit too soon. 
So is it going to be the case here uh, that that we're just going to have to accept there will be casualties? The the people who stand up earliest and have the courage to say what we all know to be true, they're going to get the flack. They're going to lose their jobs. They're going to be the ones who are who are punished. And then eventually everyone will be saying it. Unfortunately so. And I'm I'm uh, one of the well, I was about to say I'm one of the victims, but I'm not going to use that word because I actually don't like playing with victim hoods um, much. But I, I will say that I've fallen foul of this and I've been cancelled. Um, but I know I'm just one of many. Um, and I think there have to be a lot of four guys and four girls, unfortunately. Um, there's a huge amount of support out there. And when people are donating to my my litigation, I'm getting messages all the time saying that they wish that they could speak out about it, but they're, they're fearful that what happened to me will happen to them, which I appreciate and I, I understand that, particularly when people's livelihoods are at stake. Um, but what I always try and do is just encourage as best as possible for people to be as brave as they can, because, you know, although I've suffered personally throughout all of this, th- there is something very powerful about being true to yourself. Um, so... You know, I still think it's worth it. But yes, unfortunately, I think there will be further casualties until the tide begins to turn. I, mean, I think that's really worth emphasising. The consolations of, of uh, being honest are pretty immense, actually. Mm. I think, I, you know, I don't, I don't think I could live a life where I'm expected to lie all the time. I, I, I think that's quite self, a self-destructive thing to do, even though there are costs to being mm. honest. Um, but let's let's just quickly talk about because uh, it wasn't just Childline uh, where this happened to you. This was also your master's degree, wasn't it? There was an issue with the university. Do you want to tell us what happened there? Yeah. So at the time that this was happening, I was I was three years into my master's degree in psychotherapy. Um, I had just been given permission, actually, by my institute to set up a private practice and start seeing paid clients, and I, I was hoping to. Um, basically transition into a full-time vocation in this. I, I, as I said earlier, I began to get concerned about treatment for children with gender dysphoria and what was happening in the therapy profession. So I began to speak out about it. I raised some concerns with my accreditation body. I, I wrote some articles. I started a petition um, to the government asking them to make sure that they safeguarded explorative therapy for children as part of any ban on conversion therapy. Uh, and that petition ended up doing very well, actually. It got 10,000 signatures. The government responded very favourably. Um, but, of course, this upset some activists on the other side, and I could see that some, there were complaints about me flying a base. Um, anyway, on a Wednesday in May, I received an email out of the blue from the deputy CEO of my institute. It's called Metanoia Institute. It's, it's a therapeutic training body. It's accredited by Middlesex University. Uh, I had an email from the deputy CEO saying that there had been a couple of complaints about me and my petition. Would I come in and have an informal conversation with them? Now, I was taken aback because I I didn't feel that I'd done anything wrong. I just wanted to have a dialogue. Um, I said, of course, I'll come in for a meeting. Two days later, it was scheduled for that Friday. But I, I intimated that I was quite anxious about this. And it was emphasized to me in no uncertain terms that there was nothing to be worried about. This was simply an informal chat and nothing more. I wasn't provided with any evidence uh, or such like, but I thought that that would be revealed at the meeting. Anyway, fast forward 24 hours later, so this is the Thursday, with the meeting scheduled for the following day, and uh, an email notification popped up in my inbox from the deputy CEO, and the title was Termination of Contract. And in that two-paragraph email, I was informed that I was being summarily expelled from my master's course 
um, and that the meeting the following day wouldn't go ahead. Um, on, they said on the basis that I brought them into disrepute. Um, as you can imagine, I was extraordinarily shocked and I, I couldn't quite believe it. I thought there has to have been some sort of mistake here. So I went to respond to the email and I discovered that they had already blocked my email address. So I couldn't actually communicate with them. So they were moving very quickly on this and not not sort of giving much scope for discussion or investigation. Uh, there was there was zero scope. I, I, I never I was never provided with any policies. I was never provided with any evidence. I was never afforded a single conversation. So I actually never had a conversation with anyone in my institution um, before they decided to expel me. Um, I went to log into the internet to try and find the policies on this. I'd been blocked from the internet, so I couldn't even find out the basis on which they'd gotten rid of me. <clears throat> and then that same evening, I was just browsing through Twitter, uh, and I discovered that they had publicised my expulsion on their Twitter page. Um, as if ruining my future vocation by kicking me off the course wasn't enough. It seemed that they would stick the boot in and also go for my reputation on social media as well. And what was their justification for this publicly? You'd have to ask them that, Andrew. I still haven't gotten to the bottom of that. Although it's interesting because in this tweet that they put out, they emphasised they stood in solidarity, their words, with the LGBT community, and they linked to a, a statement of solidarity they have with the LGBT community, um, which in itself was almost painting me as in some way anti-LGBT. And I received a hell of a lot of abuse online as a result of that tweet, actually. Yeah, I mean, that's the implication, isn't it? That if they're, if they are if this coincides with the statement of solidarity <laughs> that, you know, they're saying that you are, you are failing uh, to be in solidarity with LGBT people. I mean, that's, and again and again, this seems to be the thing. So what's ha- what do you think is happening there specifically at the university? Do you think it is a small uh, contingent of very powerful activists who have infiltrated that institution and are, uh, you know, effectively dominating through a process of intimidation? Or do you think it is a more generalised ideological capture that, that just goes across the board? I think it's a combination of both. I, th- I think they don't, I mean, they don't like my beliefs and that's the basis of the case I'm bringing discrimination against my beliefs. They, they clearly believe that there are, you know, many sexes, many genders. And if I believe that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, that that's not okay. Um, I do think that they've kind of been ideologically captured, if I'm going to put it like that, by certain individuals um, with certain ideological goals. And I think an element of it is about trying to save themselves, and yeah. you know, we see this time and time again. I, again, I, I don't know because I, I haven't seen the full extent of the complaints they received, although I think it was very few. But at the first sign of any complaints, they want to protect themselves. And so basically I was um, thrown under the bus. Well, this is another problem, isn't it, is that it doesn't take many complaints uh, for people to back away in fear. Uh, and, you know, I was speaking to Mary Burke, a comedian uh, on my show last week, and she, you know, she had just had a gig pulled because a couple of potential audience members had contacted the venue and said they felt unsafe with this comedian performing there because they didn't like some of her material. They said it found, they found it offensive. And what she was saying uh, in that particular material was that she resented being called a cervix haver rather than a woman uh, when the NHS contacted her. You know, this it, it, and, you know, it's it's it does feel like sort of through the looking glass moments when you can't even say that on stage. Uh, without without people claiming to feel unsafe, but I think this this adds another element, doesn't it? Is that the claim of unsafety, the claim that your opinions and the opinions that you hold in particular, which are shared by ninety nine percent of the country, hmm. uh, somehow constitute 
uh, a form of violence almost or, or 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 have a threatening quality about them i mean that is if we are to take them at their word uh, an entire pseudo reality that bears no resemblance to the truth completely i mean <clears throat> particularly when we're talking about educational institutions here the entire basis and foundation should be free speech, open thoughts, open dialogue. I mean, this is contained in all of their policies. I've, I've now gained access to their policies. And they, they make a point of saying that they encourage um, debate and dialogue, even on very sensitive topics. Well, clearly um, not. <laughs> well, exactly, clearly not. Um, one would think that educational institutes might owe some sense as well of, of loyalty towards students who have been there for a number of years rather than Twitter strangers. Um, you know, I, I'd spent tens of thousands of pounds on this course I've been a good student, I've worked hard, I've just been signed off for private practice, but they were happy to expel me uh, over an email. Um, th there's also con something concerning about the penalty, because as I said, it was immediate expulsion with no rise of appeal. When I finally got hold of the policies, I was looking through the disciplinary policy, which talks about different sanctions that are suitable um, for different types of misconduct. <clears throat> the, the types of misconducts in which immediate expulsion is suitable is written down in the policy as things such as sexual assault, physical violence, or defrauding the institute. So they hold my beliefs on par with that, it would seem. So they believe that uh, a statement of scientific fact that most people understand to be scientific fact is the equivalent of sexual assault or violence. Okay, if that's the case, uh, don't they owe you some money? Well, this is partly why I'm taking them to court. <clears throat> I mean, it's about much more than money for me because my, I've, you know, my reputation has been irretrievably damaged and my standing in, in the profession as well. Um, so, it, you know, I, I am seeking personal justice and all of this, but it, it's become about much more than me. And since I've started down this path, my eyes have been open to exactly what's going on in these charities, such as mermaids, inside schools, inside other universities and in the therapeutic profession. So this has become more than that. And, and this has become about standing up for children's safety and women's rights and freedom of speech. Yeah, and it is, it, it is also about the broader principle that uh, any university that claims to be a university uh, has to <laughs> uphold principles of scientific, scientific inquiry, inquiry, freedom of speech and the pursuit of truth. It's, it's sort of essential to their entire credibility. Uh, which university is this, by the way? Yeah, so it's, it's called Metanoia Institute, um, which is a bit of a mouthful. It's, it's the way therapy is taught in this country. It's taught in kind of smaller uh, psychotherapeutic organisations. But the master's course I was on was accredited by Middlesex University. So, I mean, surely that's what this case is about, because by, by behaving in this way, have they not just entirely discredited the, their, their own claim to be a university of good standing? Well, I mean, this, this is this is what we're saying. The the, the claim. I mean, the, I'm taking the claim in front of the employment tribunal. I'm bringing a claim both against the institution I was studying at, also my therapeutic regulatory body, um, right. the United Kingdom Council for Psychotherapy, because it does seem, in information that's come to light, that actually they had some hand in what happened to me. There was stuff going on behind the scenes. Um, but the basis of the claim is discrimination based on my beliefs. Yes, very interesting. Uh, well, uh, and your fund fundraising for that at the moment, that's what your crowdfunder is, is for, presumably. Correct. And the response has been absolutely incredible. And I've been very touched by the fact that complete strangers from home and abroad have been willing to part with their hard-earned cash um, to support me. I mean, today's 
I've raised over eighty thousand pounds from, and it's it's not you know not, I mean there's claims put out there that I'm funded by anti-LGBT organisations. In fact, it's I think it's about three and a half thousand individual donations yeah. between five twenty quid. It just shows the strength of feeling that's out there actually on this. Um, and I'm not the only case that's been crowdfunded. And there's always been concerns that eventually the crowdfunded cases will dry up because people will lose interest or they'll have spent too much money. But time and time again, people are backing this stuff. And it's because, unfortunately, it's the only way to seek justice. And invariably, those kind of smears will happen. I mean, that, that's become a common trope of, you know, who's who's funding you is, 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 is when people don't support someone's cause, they will try to smear them through association or by suggesting that they're being funded by nefarious characters or that kind of thing. It's, an, it's the oldest trick in the book, really. Um, how has this affected you, though? I mean, it, just in terms on a, on a personal level, because obviously, you know, you you, you were involved in a uh, in in Childline. Uh, you, your concern was for the welfare of children. This is uh, hardly what we would say is a malevolent pursuit. Um, so you're trying to do good, and then you are attacked for 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 speaking the truth. And now, of course, you've become uh, a target for activists who will do their utmost and, and will lie. Let's be honest, they will outright lie about you in order to, to, to see your reputation trashed and will continue to do so. Has it had any personal toll on you or psychological toll? Huge toll. Um, and it's, it's certainly the most distressing period of time I've gone through in my life. I mean, I'm very thankful to have the support of girlfriends, support of family and friends around me, you know, who haven't turned their back on me. Uh, I know that other people haven't been so fortunate in that respect. I, I mean, when, when I got expelled from the course and when I was chucked out of Childline, you know, I, I basically kind of collapsed. And I, I was a shell of a person um, and I was struggling to function. You know, it was only once I started to receive support, once I sought legal advice, that I began to pick myself up again. But I, I, I still find things very difficult. You know, and I'm not the only one, so I'm not going to pretend I am. But you know, I'm, I'm guessing the old death threats on on Twitter. I'm guessing lies, you know, malicious lies put out about me and, and rumours which are extremely hurtful. Particularly because, as you said, the sole purpose of me going into this in the first place was to help children. That's all I've ever wanted. Um, to, and so to have people accusing me of of being anti-children in some ways is, is hurtful. I often have to drive or walk by the child line um, counselling office. I still feel deep sadness about that. And, and, and often on a Thursday night, which is when my usual shift used to be, sometimes I'll just be sat at home watching television. I'll look over the clock and I think I should be there right now. And I should be in front of that computer and on that telephone speaking to those young people. And I've been prevented from doing so. And I feel a sense of injustice and also deep sadness about that. Do you think, I mean, I often wonder about the kind of people who, who perpetuate these uh, smear campaigns against individuals such as yourself. And I wonder whether they, uh, you know, I, I imagine this kind of movement will attract bullies, people who want to be able to be vicious uh, and mean spirited to people and have the cloak of, uh, of, of virtue while they do it. It's an excellent sort of disguise. On the other hand, uh, I have seen evidence that a lot, of the, a lot of the most bullying and vicious people online tend to 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 believe they're doing god's work uh and you know much like the inquisitors probably thought that strapping people to the rack was was a holy and wonderful thing to do so you have this odd combination don't you of 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 those who are who are behaving in this incredibly malevolent way vicious um uh, um a complete lack of empathy it would seem um and, and yet they call themselves the good guys and yet they're doing so 
because they are empowered by this sort of almost religious belief that what they are doing is on the side of the angels. But at the same time, I have also seen evidence that there are people who just simply revel in toxicity and, and causing harm to others. To what degree do you think uh, it's, a, it's a bit of both? I mean, I think current ways of communicating, particularly on social media, don't necessarily help this because all nuance is taken out of these conversations and, you know, the increase in troll-like behaviour. So I, I think there is an element of that. But I, I think predominantly it is actually just bound up in this cult-like ideological behaviour where people are seen as kind of holier than they and everyone else is the enemy. It's very much an us versus them type of atmosphere. I mean, it was quite telling. I became aware of a Facebook group actually for therapists. You know, again, what one would think therapists might engage in empathy um, but anyway, I, I became aware of a group of therapists online who, upon discovering that I'd been expelled from my course, were having many kind of celebrations on the Facebook group and congratulating each other and saying what a wonderful day it is, um, with zero thought for actually the evidence and what had really occurred and, and clearly zero thought for, for me and the implications for my reputation and my livelihood, um, which was just quite striking to see. Um, I think there's a real deficit of empathy, actually, on this topic in particular, but more generally in the world today. Um, so I'd like us, if possible, to try and recover some of that goodwill that we have towards each other. But I, I, I can't see it returning anytime soon, albeit, to be fair, again, the, the generosity that I've received from those who back my case and who reach out to me has restored some of my faith in humanity. Yeah, I think there are a lot of decent people who are involved in this uh, debate and who are trying to move things forward, who are trying to to you know to stimulate some serious discussion um but by the same token when i see for instance uh, activists uh, celebrating when someone dies because that person disagrees with their viewpoint i do i do think that's sociopathic as far as i can see or oh, that's just or just downright evil I, I you know and i think there is there is there is a lot of elements uh, in that but i think certainly um the answer is is uh, restoring the pr- primacy of empathy and compassion it just it just seems so lacking in so much of this discourse i have no idea why that's happened i mean uh, you know you would have more expertise than i would but is there any particular reason why there would seem to is, is it just an appearance of a dearth of empathy or is it is there something going on well i think when we're engaging over channels of computers and phones it can be very easy to forget that there's a real person on the other side of that i, I think so much of it's bound up in that um you know sure as hell these people wouldn't be saying these things to my face and that isn't just because they'd feel embarrassed to do so i think actually when you're confronted with an individual you realize that they are human just as you are yeah um, so I, I which is why i prefer to engage in kind of face-to-face longer form dialogue I mean, to anyone who's listening to this podcast who is of a different view to me, please reach out to me because I would very like to have, uh, you know, respectful, open dialogue on these topics and I, and, and to show people as well to kind of be role models and to embody that idea that we can be grown-ups and have a sensible conversation on things that we completely disagree with. I mean, that's how humanity's gotten to where it is today. If, if people didn't engage with those that they disagreed with on fundamental things, I, I doubt our species would still be in existence. Um, so we seem to have lost a part of that. And I'd, I'd like us to regain as possible. But how can we, when we have Stonewall, saying that to debate is, is a form of violence? <laughs> you know, I, mean, I don't think they say that explicitly. They say that we, we just don't debate. But some activists certainly do say. Uh, I know Nadia Whittam said that, uh, that we shouldn't fetishise debate. You know, there's a lot of... Uh, there's a, 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 a an awful lot of this movement is bound up with this idea that that to have discussions is a, is is part of the problem, and in other words, it is I suppose an authoritarian movement, the one that wishes to impose its values on anyone else, 
uh, and simply and, and, and claim that they are not up for discussion. So once that becomes the norm, you see, this is my worry about this. Up to a point, we can push back against it. Um, but when that kind of authoritarianism is deeply embedded into our major institutions, as it currently is, uh, and we're talking educational, political, legal, the media, the arts, it's just there. Uh, it does mean that it's going to be harder to turn that around, doesn't it? Because because the people who might enable and facilitate those discussions are part of the problem. Well, this is why it has to happen in the schools and in the universities. It, people can change, you know, uh, and our brains and our brain wiring can change over time with enough repetition. But I, I think to a large degree, a lot of adults who are very hard line on these issues, it's going to be difficult to change them. I, I think it has to come down to children and actually making them feel uh, safe enough, if we're going to put it like that, to be able to have disagreements and to have conversations. Um, this is, this is, that's precisely my point, is that I agree with you. I think, I think education is key here. And I think a liberal education, an education that encourages discussion and debate and disagreement. Mm. Uh, you know, when I used to teach critical thinking, the first thing I taught was that once you've thrown an insult, you've lost the argument. You mustn't assume the worst intentions of your, of your opponent or the person who's arguing against you. But while we have a situation where teachers, irrespective of their personal beliefs, are expected to peddle an ideological line that is anathema to discussion and debate, how on earth can we possibly hope uh, to achieve the kind of goals that you're outlining? It's, it's, it's not going to be easy. I think we need to disentangle ideological organisations from education. There's a lot of third sector, not-for-profit organisations that provide materials to schools. We need to find a way. Te parents need to become aware of what their children are being taught at school and then find ways to basically pitch the school to stop teaching this material because it's factually inaccurate. I think schools need to go back to actually encouraging debate among students. I think parents have a role to play in this as well, um, in terms of emphasising that, you know, even if we, and, and that maybe starts within the household actually, in modelling the ability to have conversations and to disagree with each other and that being all right. Um, I mean, it's it, it's going to be very difficult. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I am fearful for the future. In, in, in that respect. Well, I, th I think it needs to be bigger than just individual parents. I mean, I've spoken to parents who, who almost, well, they've said they see it as their role now to, to de-radicalise their kids from what they've been taught during the day at school. Um, and of course, there are a number of uh, parents who now homeschool precisely because of reasons such mm. as this. But that only gets us so far because really what we need is a kind of institutional shake-up. Uh, and while you have, uh, you know, heads of school who are just terrified of, of standing up to this and we'll just simply go along with it uh, for an easy life and i understand uh, why they would do that but surely it has to come from i suppose the government i don't trust this government because this this government i think is very much um, a part of the problem uh, in terms of their ideology i think they are very much on board with these kind of things you see that in their in their uh, pushing through the online safety bill mm. for instance they're not interested in discussion uh, they're not interested in free speech really so um you know, I, I just want, I'm just trying to work out how it can be done when all of the barriers are already in place to stop it being done. And, and maybe it's just about individual teachers uh, taking a stand within institutions, perhaps. Hmm. I, I, I agree with you. I mean, to some extent, children are almost lost um, at the point at which they're being taught at schools. I spoke to a mother recently <clears throat> whose young child 
has come out as trans and the young child was talking about some of what they've been taught at school which was factually inaccurate and very clearly kind of ideological propaganda and, yeah. and, and the mother tried to have a conversation with her son and say well actually that isn't quite true and you know can we think about it a different way and the son he's quite young and he said to her but if i've been taught it at school it must be true yeah well of course because that's how education has to work is there has to be a level of trust in the in the in the uh, authority figure that's teaching you that you know, this, this has been called a legitimation crisis where we no longer trust figures of authority and therefore the whole world becomes destabilised. And, and I think that's particularly the case if you're a young person. Uh, you know, we, we can't be effectively socialised unless we are effectively educated. And if the education is rotten, uh, then you'll end up with um, curdled minds uh, when, they, when people get older. You know, this is, this is quite an obvious pedagogical point. Um, so I don't know what the answer is, but I, I was I was just wondering if you had any other suggestions of how we can. I, I think perhaps the only way is to is to embolden teachers, uh, you know, to let them know. I mean, there are there are places such as the Free Speech Union who are doing incredible work to sort of say, look, you can be open about your opinions, you can challenge this dogma in the workplace, and we will support you when they come for you. But the problem is, they will come for you. Look, personally, I think it has to be both micro and macro. Um, I, I agree with you that things have gotten so bad that I think it is going to require a kind of national approach. And I would like to see the government step up in this space, but uh, I think people are going to have to make more noise and maybe more people are going to have to be cancelled before that happens. Uh, and maybe people will have to vote, you know, on the ballot box next time round on this topic. But I think, I think we have to start from a micro level. Again, as I said earlier, most parents uh, have very little knowledge of actually what the children are being taught at school. Yeah. Um, and I always implore them to actually ask the school because they're entitled to know what that is. And if they see that their children are being taught factually inaccurate information or ideological propaganda, they need to call that school aid. Um, I appreciate it's a very slow way of going about this, but it, it, it's better than nothing. You know, every child that we can help from being subjected to this type of material has to be a good thing. I always thought that when it came to children that this would be the tipping point, you know, because I, I just think... Uh, people can tolerate it in their workplace and they can tolerate it in their daily lives. But I think once once ideologues start going after your kids, I, I mean, I, I, I don't have children myself, but I, I know people who do have children and I can see the strength of passion <laughs> that that entails. Uh, and I would have thought this would be the thing that really motivates uh, parents to gather en masse to, against this. But is it simply, as you've suggested there, that perhaps people don't, don't know. I mean, there's a few high profile things happening here and there. You know, when when the American school in London was segregating kids by race for after school activities, that caused a stir because that's something that's that's a visible manifestation of what happens when you implement critical race theory in schools. And all of a sudden people start investigating it, Googling it, finding out what the implications of critical race theory are. Oh, look, it's not just teaching kids not to be racist. It's not just uh, teaching kids about the history of racism, which anyone would be on board with. It's something else. It's actually the end point is racial segregation. It's a regressive idea uh, um, uh, disguised as something progressive. And we have the same with gender identity ideology. Uh, it is disguised as though it is a compassionate progressive thing. And it's actually the reverse. So is it simply that the, the activists have been so successful in concealing what it is that, that people people go along with it out of ignorance. And I don't mean that in a negative sense, out of, as in, in a literal sense, they don't, they simply don't know. 
That's definitely part of it. So in, in that sense, they've been very successful with their aims because they've normalised this, but, you know, particularly through the use of language. I mean, it's becoming so common now to hear people introducing themselves via their pronouns or organisations encouraging people to sign off their signature with their pronouns. That has normalised things in such a way in that people kind of go along with it because it's become what they're used to, actually. But if they were to take a step back and think about well, what is going on here, I think they'd have some concerns with this. Even visualisation and images, flags, for example, the non-binary flag being used as pedestrian crossings, etc. I've always found the crossings one particularly interesting because particularly when it is literally the only crossing that one is legally and safely meant to use on the road, it's almost forcing people to subconsciously go along with an ideology in order to remain safe. From a therapeutic point of view, I find that quite fascinating. Um, I think part of it as well is that parents don't necessarily know what's going on so i've had a lot of complaints um about the charity mermaids and i've been provided with screenshots for example from mermaids kind of youth forum they call us where the young people can talk to each other but there are adult moderators who work for mermaids and i saw one in particular in which a young girl had come through and said that she didn't feel comfortable in her body she didn't like her breasts but her parents wouldn't let her get a, a breast binder because of the health implications. Uh, and without any exploration whatsoever, the adult mermaid's moderator offers to send her out a breast binder for free behind her parents' back. Right. That's what we're dealing with here. I mean, that surely is going to stir the ire of, of parents. You know, just the, the, the sheer fact that there hasn't been an open dialogue about the, what is in the best interest of their, of their offspring. I would have thought that would be sufficient. Uh, do, you, do you think when it comes to mermaids in particular, I mean, I, I know that there are some people who are now looking into mermaids a great deal, but to, to what extent is this just a rehabilitated form of homophobia? It's just, you know, I mean, there was that that private joke in the Tavistock Clinic about, you know, the staff were saying, well, soon there won't be any gay people left mm -hmm. because because gender nonconforming young people more often than not turn out to be gay, of course. And and, and so a lot of uh, gay rights activists and because being gay is is and 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 all of the achievements of gay rights have been based on a recognition of the reality of biological sex. It's, it's key. Uh, is this just a, a new way that homophobia has become mainstream? Interestingly, on another screenshot I saw from a mermaid's chat room, there was a kind of poll up ranking sexualities based on their level of transphobia. What does that um, mean? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I, I think lesbians came top from my memory. But it, it was very odd to even see that there, actually, because I'd never... To even think about it in those terms is quite odd. But anyway, I'd use that as an anecdote to possibly support what you just said. But I, I, I do think we need to look at the, the, the gay community and their concerns quite strongly, because as you said, um, the links between those with gender dysphoria who end up coming out as gay is, is so stark. Um, and I'm hearing anecdotally in, in certain cultures, for example, that, that certain parents would rather their kids were trapped in the wrong body and straight than be gay and i think we need yeah. to take those things very seriously we also need to look at what's happened in the amount of vitriol that's been thrown at, for example lgb alliance you know they, they've set up an organization they've dropped the t which seems to be the most controversial aspect of what they've done because they're saying well these things don't have anything to do with one another and we need to support the rights of gay and bisexual people um and they've been attacked and smeared and we know that mermaids are leading a legal challenge trying to get their charitable status removed. So there's, there's definitely something there. 
Well, also just simply, um, you know, there have been websites that have collected uh, the extent of anti-gay vitriol that is now nor the norm on social media. And it's always coming from uh, uh, people who support gender identity ideology. There are thousands and thousands. And it's old school homophobia, things like saying that AIDS is a good thing that it because it was killing off the gays. Uh, faggots should be should die. Um, homophobia ought to be normalized. I've seen that phrase a lot an awful lot and you know it isn't just you can find anything on twitter if you look for it there's always a few idiots saying something but i've seen thousands and thousands of these coming from people with the 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 progress pride flag in their in their bio so it's 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 a very real growing thing there is this burgeoning aggressive homophobia coming from those who support gender identity ideology so how you know this is something that people need to recognize and understand this is a kind of re-emerging and anti-gay sentiment even using the old tropes that i thought had been left behind i've been pretty shocked by it and in tandem with that uh the kind of aggressive misogyny that we have seen coming out of of of, of uh the, the the more vocal proponents of gender identity ideology rape threats overt sexualization of women uh if they want to denigrate them all of this there seems to be a connection here which i think it would it would benefit us for for people to do some serious in depth study into into this development. Yeah, I, I, again, it's it's a mixture of lacking empathy, but at times active kind of vitriol or hatred towards certain groups of people. I, I, I've seen I've seen trans activists say and demand actually that that there should be double mastectomies on demand for them because women can avail of the same when they have breast cancer. Right. I, you know, the, the fact that that type of statement is being put out there is, is, is really you know, deeply concerning. Going back to the, the sexuality point of view, I mean, we need to think about even the term kind of same-sex attracted uh, is being eradicated. Uh, yeah. and, and there are people out there being told that they are transphobic because they don't feel sexually attracted towards somebody uh, biologically of the other sex who has transitioned and is now the same gender as them. I mean, we can't. How can we? How can we exist in the space actually in which people's mere innate sexual attraction can potentially be transphobic? And a lot of people will say that they don't believe that's happening, but I can guarantee that it is. I mean, it, it, it's all over the place. And thankfully, as I say, there are websites that collate this stuff, so you can see the extent of it. Um, but but simply denying it isn't isn't helpful. Um, it, you know, I remember there was a, a poster up at a university. I think it might have been Sheffield. Some activists have put up a poster saying genital preferences are transphobic. And I remember at the time, a lot of people saying, well, this is just a myth. This is just uh, propaganda. No one's actually saying that. But now more and more people are explicitly saying that. Uh, and they're saying, really, to be gay is to be a transphobe. So, you know, I, I don't know what you do with that because <laughs> that's it's such an incoherent stance. And the more that becomes normal, um, the more that these divisions Mm. are going to are going to be exacerbated right well you've i mean you've touched upon this in quite a lot of your work andrew around this whole you know hashtag be kind movement and, and often not affording the same to other people that they engage with it, it's it's pure hypocrisy um if we think about the term cis for example cisgender myself and most people i know reject that term they find it to be offensive actually uh, and we have trans activists who say that you must potentially on pain of criminal punishment use our pronouns and see us how we see ourselves but it's okay for us to keep calling you cisgender even if you don't identify with that yourself it's just pure double standards at the end of the day 
Well, cisgender doesn't make sense if, unless you believe in gender identity as a right. thing. And most people don't. Uh, most people don't have a gender identity. They don't think it exists. So uh, you can, uh, and a cis person is one who identifies with the sex they were assigned at birth. That's the definition, right? Mm. But I, I, but sex isn't assigned at birth and I don't have a gender identity. So it, to describe me as cis actually makes no sense at all. What it is, of course, is imposing uh, an ideological value judgment onto someone else, one that they might not share. It would be like me saying to someone, else, someone calling someone a, uh, uh, I suppose, a non-Catholic or a Catholic or just deciding to, to impose this value when it just doesn't make sense to that person. Hmm. Yeah, on its face, it's, it's incoherent and illogical. It's the way in which it's being said as well. So on one level, I and others reject that term because we say it doesn't apply to us and it doesn't make sense. But it, it's the vitriol with which it's said yeah. For example, again, I've I've seen on, on Twitter, for example, uh, kind of emojis and pictures depicting like I think it's like a tissue box that says cis tears on it. Yeah. So any person who they deem to be cisgender um, is complaining or challenging something, that's to represent the tears that they should be crying. Um, you know, the mere fact actually that there are that often trans activists make all sorts of assumptions about individuals flies in the face of what they say. I mean, people are forever um, referring to me as cisgender, but I, I know that they didn't take the time to ask my pronouns, which is what they're always stating is should be required for them. So again, it's just, it's just incoherent narrative. So at this point, uh, do you have much hope for the future? I mean, it does seem like we're having this conversation now and it feels a little bleak insofar as, you know, what you've been going through, uh, but also just, you know, just even talking about, the, the possibility of a future in which we can have these discussions and it just feels so far away. It, it, you know, it feels like maybe we're just in the eye of the storm at the moment, but do you have a, a sense of optimism for, for, for the future or do you, think, uh, do you think this is it? I mean, I won't pretend this hasn't been somewhat of a depressing conversation. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm kind of wishing my glass of water had something a bit stronger in it. But, um, but you know, truth be told, actually, I, I do have some optimism, which is rare for me because I'm the ultimate cynic and sceptic, but I, I do feel that the tide is beginning to turn very slowly. We, we've had some legal victories, for example, the Maya Forstatter case, you know, enshrining gender critical beliefs in law, and that's one I'm hoping to use in my own case. Um, and we've seen a few other court victories on top of that. We've seen some interesting things coming out. Um, for example, the Equality and Human Rights Commission response to the conversion therapy legislation, you know, saying you need to push pause on banning this for gender identity because there isn't an evidence base here and it needs to be subjected to proper scrutiny. Um, and I have seen certain organisations and even a few educational institutes actually pushing back against cancel culture, although they're still relatively small in number. But I... It, it feels like something in, in the air is beginning to change. Media journalists are beginning to take more notice of this. Um, so, and there are groups forming. I'm part of a group called Thoughtful Therapists who have concerned in this space. I see groups of social workers, teachers and parents beginning to club together and see how they can fight back against this ideology. So I, I, I don't think we're going to get there for a while, but I, I do remain optimistic. And I think eventually we will get there. But... I, you know, and, and maybe, as I said, I've had to be one of the four guys for this, um, e even if I've suffered personally for it. Um, I'm just thankful that I have the opportunity to input into this ongoing debate. And I, I'm hopeful that it, it won't have been in vain, actually. Um, so even if I've suffered reputationally and financially, 
if I can help to bring about a change in this space, then it will all have been worth it. James Esses, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you. This has been the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, James Esses. If you're interested in supporting James, you can do so by going to Crowd Justice. Just search for James Esses and you'll find out what you can do there. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do like and subscribe and make sure that you join me next week when I'm going to have another fabulous guest. See you then.